0: to John chapter 4. Now my Bible has been getting older and the print has been becoming more and more faded, so this morning I have to wear glasses to read the print. Yes. I have to get a larger print Bible. This is this is embarrassing. I want you to know that. I... Okay. Anyway. All right. We're going to look at John chapter four. Now, in in the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, we're going to do we're going to uh, read an interview between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, and it's a it's a, 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 a much read and a much-studied passage, but for the context of our purposes with respect to the emphasis on evangelism and so forth, it's very, very helpful and instructive and encouraging to us. We looked last week at at the first in a series of three interviews. Next week, we're going to look at the third interview. That's the interview that Jesus has with the nobleman, and he heals the nobleman's son. That's That's an exciting, exciting account. But last week, we looked at Nicodemus and Jesus' conversation with him. And on the surface of it, if you you, you were to meet Nicodemus, here's a guy that seems to have it all together. He's the classic example of a, humanly speaking, righteous person, religious. He's just an all-around, regular, good guy. You would think, man, this guy has got it all together. But Jesus, John says, knows what's in a man's heart. He knows what's in us. He knows our needs, and so he looks into Nicodemus right past all the religiosity, right past all the the uh, uh, human righteousness and goodness, and he knows that that Nicodemus has a tremendous need in his life. Nicodemus is a seeker; he wants to really know and have the assurance of salvation. And uh, Jesus says, "Nick, listen, I tell you the truth: no man." Not even you can see, can comprehend, can understand, or even enter in to the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And Jesus goes on to describe to him what it means to be born again and how he must be born of the Spirit. But before being born of the Spirit, he must undergo an act of repentance. He must be born of water, hearkening back, I think, to John's baptism of repentance. Now remember, he's, he's in a sense asking Nicodemus not only to put faith in Jesus, but to understand his basis for putting faith in Jesus, that he is lost, that he is a sinner, that he does need to make that public statement of repentance. Hence, being born of water, undergoing a a, a literal water baptism. We're not talking about Christian baptism. We're talking about John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance. And for Nicodemus to do that, now remember, this was a tremendous thing for him to have to do. Because he's got a lot of pride. Wait a minute, I'm a Pharisee. I'm religious. I have it all together. But for him to humble himself, indeed, it would be humiliating for him to have to undergo that rite of of baptism and making a public testimony of repentance. That's the same case for all of us, isn't it? Is it easy to say, I'm a sinner and publicly repent? No, but that was the demand that Jesus was making on him and in order for him to do it, it was a tremendous step of faith. Now he's going to talk to the woman at the well here in the fourth chapter. The same thing's going to go on He's gonna encounter this person. Now, she is the exact opposite. Everything that Nicodemus is, she is not. But you know, Jesus is impartial. He shows no partiality. And so he's gonna reach out to this woman. And he, in effect, during the course of their interview, is gonna ask her to do the exact same thing, to take a step of faith. And the issue is, will she or won't she? Just like Nicodemus. Let's read in chapter four. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Now, when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, there's, a, there's some problems or potential problems on the horizon that Jesus anticipates. He, he's preaching, and his disciples are baptizing, and they're baptizing more, more people than John's disciples are baptizing. Now, there could be the potential for jealousy on behalf of John's disciples over what's going on with Jesus and his disciples. Do you see that? He's getting more than we're getting. And so in order to avert that, and to not cause a rift in what's going on, what God is doing through John and Jesus, Jesus chooses to withdraw and go up to Galilee. Compounding that, is the potential for premature antagonism by the Pharisees. Now John is already incurring the wrath of the Pharisees. They don't like him one single bit because he's uh, he's just, he's just castigating them for their false religion, for their false belief and statement of faith. Now, Jesus is coming along. He's baptizing more people. He has the potential of becoming an even greater thorn in the side of the Pharisees. Jesus is not quite ready yet for them to be fully antagonistic towards him. So in order, in order to avoid that premature antagonism, which will obviously result in his death, he withdraws and goes up to Galilee. Withdrawal for him at this point is the better part of uh, what he should do. So he's he's going to go up to Galilee. Now, John records in the next verse, verse 4, that he had to go through Samaria. Now, Galilee is up in the north. Judea is in the south. And in order for you to travel from Judea to Galilee, the intervening area was the area of Samaria. Most every Jew who would travel from the south to the north would circumvent Samaria because Samaria was the land of people. It was the district where the Samaritans lived. Now, the Samaritans were half breeds, in effect. They were the scum of the earth. They were as bad, if not worse, to the Jewish mind than was the Gentile. And if a Jew would have interaction with a Samaritan, he was ceremonially unclean and had to go through ritual washings and so forth. So he had wanted nothing to do with the the Samaritans. Now the Samaritans, earlier on, centuries earlier, they found their beginnings in the the 10 tribes of Israel. The nation of Israel was divided into two sections, the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes, dominated by Judah. They were immersed in idolatry, and so at that particular period in time in history, God brought the Assyrians, not the Syrians, the Assyrians, who were the most powerful nation on earth, brought them and and swooped down and and literally wiped out Israel, the ten northern tribes, as discipline for those people who turned away from Him. And either they killed off or carried away off into captivity these, the, sub, the, the substantial numbers of, of the 10 tribes of Israel. They left s- some people still to inhabit the land, and then they resettled people from other nations and tribes over which they'd conquered. And so you have these, these, the remaining the remnant intermarrying with the people who the Assyrians resettled into the land. And so you have these people with all sorts of mixed up backgrounds. But they're still claiming to believe in God, a remnant of belief. Now over the centuries now rises up a great difference in animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. And the Jews down here, they're, they're not half-breeds, they're full-on Jewish people, and they're looking at these people up here who claim to believe in the same God as being the scum of the earth. So you can understand how they would circumvent this nation. Now, any Jew who would go up north and dare go through Samaria was often at risk to be beaten, robbed, left for dead, and so forth. And so there was another reason why they didn't go through Samaria. But John uses this account Or he bounces off this background and he gives us some insight into Jesus' character and something that God has been planning for before the creation of the world. He tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. Now, the idea of having to go, it's, it's like it's a logical necessity. He has to do this. It's like a triangle has three sides. It has to have three sides to be a triangle. It's a logical necessity. Jesus must go through Samaria. Why must he go through Samaria? Why can't he go around? Is he in that big a hurry? Is there some some issue going on? Yes. What is it? There's a divine appointment set up. He is compelled literally by his father's will to go up into Samaria because his heavenly father has set up an appointment before the beginning of time with him to meet and talk with this woman at the well. Now I want you to think for a minute. You put yourself in the place of the Samaritan woman. You've just gotten up. You're a social outcast in your society because she is. You've got to go gather water. You can't go in the morning or the evening because that's when the women would normally go gather water. But you can't go because you're a social outcast and they just gossip and talk about you and mock you. And rather than to go all that personal pain, you'd rather go when no one else is around. So you get up early in the morning. You're waiting around till noontime so you can go out and you've got to walk a mile to the well to gather the water. You're not expecting anybody to be there. Who shows up? Who's there waiting for you? I don't know about you, but the magnitude of that reality just blows me away. I mean, I don't even have words to describe it. The immensity of, of that appointment is so big, I can't get my mind around it. It's awesome. And you know what? Jesus always kind of meets us when we least expect him, doesn't he? I mean, those of you that know Christ, you know that. You look back in your life, and he was there when you least expected him. He's always been there. And so he goes up through Samaria. He comes to this town in Samaria named Sychar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So the patriarch Jacob had dug a well. So these people are claiming Jacob is to be their patriarch also. And Jesus being tired. Jesus being tired. Those words are powerful. Who can, when you find yourself in a a place of of need, in a place of discord, disharmony, frustration, things are caving in around you, someone comes to minister to you, who, who better to minister to you, who could you receive from better Who do you think could provide more effective ministry for you personally? Someone who's been where you've been, who's experienced what you're experiencing, or someone who has no clue of what you're really experiencing? The former or the latter? The former, huh? Sure. John says, quite simply, Jesus is tired. Now, it has to do with something with the story, but I think there's much more there. I think that's a statement that says, We can trust and depend on the fact that Jesus knows our situations, each and every one of us. He knows our griefs. He knows the things in our life, the chaos, the distortions, the problems. He knows what we're going through. It's not like he's insensitive and unknowing. It's just like he's in heaven and looks down and says, oh, poor Fernando. Poor baby. No, he knows exactly what Fernando is going through. He knows his griefs. His sorrows, his struggles. And he can minister to Fernando. And Fernando can receive that ministry with confidence. I get tired ministering. I mean, I get tired ministering. And when I take time off, I feel guilty. Because I'm one of those people What a type A personality. It's got a go, 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 you know. I'm your classic legalist. I've got to keep performing, otherwise I'm not acceptable. And I get tired, and I feel guilty sometimes when I get tired and take time off. In fact, they wrote a book. Someone wrote a book says, you know, I feel I feel guilty when I relax. (laughs) It helps me to know that Jesus Himself was tired, and that Jesus took time to rest. Helps me to know. Listen to the writer to the Hebrews. In chapter 2 of Hebrews, the writer gives us some insight. He says, since the children have flesh and blood, talking about us, he too, Jesus, shared in our humanity. He became one of us. He walked along. He experienced thirst and tiredness and temptation and grief and sorrow. He wept so that we could have the confidence to know that he understands my dilemmas. He understands my life. He understands my situation. Not in a general way, but in the particular ways that I am experiencing. He goes on and he says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Over in chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows exactly what we go through because he was one of us. He had and lived in a human body subject to the same human limitations that you and I are subject to. So Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, or in other words, at noon. It was the height of the day, the hottest part of the day there. And along comes this Samaritan woman. Now, we said earlier, she was all that Nicodemus was not, and vice versa. Now, the rabbis taught that a Jewish man in public should never talk to a woman, not not even his own wife. Isn't that interesting? Gals, you are not to be talked to, not even in public. Now, Jesus is going to have a conversation not only with a woman, but with a Samaritan woman. I mean, he crosses all barriers. He tears down all the artificial things that we build up. She's everything that Nicodemus wasn't. Nicodemus was a man. She was a woman. Nicodemus was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. Nicodemus was educated. She was uneducated. He was morally upright. She was sinful. Nicodemus was a wealthy member of the upper class. She was poor and outcast. Nicodemus was serious and dignified in his conversation with Jesus, and she's flippant and undignified. But regardless of those differences, he engages her with all the sincerity and reality that he would Nicodemus. Do we do that? I confess to you that I always have a temptation to want to associate with the beautiful people. And not necessarily with the low class. With those that are not quite so beautiful. That's the temptation. But God has spoken clearly to my heart. That I am to be like Jesus, unbiased, impartial, minister to whoever God brings and stands right in front of me. It's not for me to pick and choose. It's for him to pick and choose. And Jesus being impartial is going to have an intimate conversation with this woman that's going to lead to her salvation. He's impartial, moved with compassion at the sight of her, Knowing what's in her, knowing her needs, the gospels say in another place that Jesus came not to heal the healthy, but the sick. It's not the healthy who need the doctor, but it's those of us who are sick. So Jesus, comes, she comes to the well, and Jesus says, He initiates. He always initiates. He reaches out first. Jesus is always initiating. He's not standing back saying, well, all right, come on, will you say something to me? He's always initiating. And so he reaches out to her first and he says, "Will you give me a drink? Now, it's an oriental custom that you would not refuse a person a drink of water if they were thirsty, especially on a hot day, and you had access to water and they did not. It was just... A common courtesy to give a person a drink of water. Sadly, that's not always the case in our culture today. So he asks for a drink. Now in asking for a drink, you know when you ask somebody for a favor, there's a dynamic that goes on there. When I ask you to do me a favor, then in a sense there's some kind of obligation now, isn't there? There's a mutual obligation. I've asked you a favor, you've granted the favor now, or in a sense we've bonded, there's some kind of obligation between us. And it's a pleasant thing to be obligated to somebody on the basis of a favor, a favor given, a favor asked. So he does this, and he opens the the exchange between the two of them. Now, she's surprised that he would even speak to her. She's startled and and a bit taken back, and look at her response. You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. Obviously, she recognized who he was in terms of his nationality. How can you ask me for a drink? then John's editorial comment, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. She, in effect, says, we Samaritans are to you Jews the scum of the earth. But we'll sure serve well enough when you're thirsty. In other words, when it's convenient for you, then we're helpful to you. Have you ever been used? Have you ever felt like you've been used? Is that a good feeling? No. And if you get the opportunity, if someone comes to you and they pay no attention to you, and all of a sudden they're coming to you because they can get something from you, or you have something they want, and all of a sudden they're being real nice to you, how do you respond to that person? Do you say, oh, sure. My pleasure. Anything I can do to help. Is that what rises up inside of you? No. The same response that you would experience, she experiences. She says, wait a minute. What is this? We're the scum of the earth, you guys. But boy, when you want to drink water, you should come, huh? I can help you then. Now, I want you to notice how defensively Jesus reacts. Do we react defensively when people do that to us? Oh, yes. Now, Jesus, remember, he's our example. He does not react defensively to her. He only says this. If you knew. We could preach on that all day. If you knew. Don't we say that? Oh, if you just, if you only knew. If I could just get it, if you just knew. He's saying the same thing to her. It means the same thing when you and I say it. If you knew. If you knew just how unsatisfying are the world's, biggest and best gifts. Not that it's wrong to have them, but to seek them out to satisfy your life, to fulfill you. If you knew how fleeting are the pleasures of this life, that there is pleasure in sin only for a season, and then it comes and extracts a very heavy toll. If you knew that the road on which you are traveling, where it really leads, if you just knew. If you knew how rich and wonderful and exciting the Christian life could be. I'm forever telling that to Christians. If you just knew. If you just knew, if you just understood, if you could just see it, Jesus would be the priority of your life. God's will would be the priority of your life. You'd hunger and thirst for righteousness if you just knew how God wants to bear fruit in your life if you just knew. And so he, he tries to deflect her critical response, her defensive response, and he, he's just, he keeps moving towards her, giving her more understanding if you knew, he said, the gift of God, meaning himself, he's the gift of God. And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Isn't that true? When people, when, they, when it dawns on them, when they understand how thirsty they are, how in need of satisfaction they are, and when they see that Jesus is who he says he is and he can only meet their and their need, then they say, give me help me save me if you just knew you would ask and jesus says and i would give you living water the woman says sir you have nothing to draw out of the well with the well is deep it's a hundred feet deep the well is still there by the way and you can go and you can visit it it's still there they've dug all the debris out and it's a hundred feet deep so she says it is deep and he doesn't have a bucket. Most people traveling didn't carry a bucket with him to stop at wells. He didn't have a rope to lower it down. And so she's kind of incredulous. He's talking about giving her uh, living water and she's going, wait a minute, what are you giving me? You don't even have a bucket. Where are you going to get this living water from? And then she says, are you somebody that's greater than our father Jacob who dug this well? Who do you think you are? Indeed, who does he think he is? And Jesus, of course, again, doesn't react defensively. He says, everyone who drinks this water, meaning the water of the well there. Now, living water, she understood living water is to be flowing water, as opposed to the standing water in the well. Living water was always better. It was always better to have living, flowing water than than well water. But if you couldn't get it, you got well water. So he says, everyone who drinks this water, meaning the water in the well, will be thirsty again. Now she understands that. You and I understand that. He says, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Whoa, what kind of water is this? Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Not only is it going to meet and satisfy you in this life, it's going to be a well that springs up to eternal life. Inexhaustible source of water. You know, there is nothing better when you're thirsty than a nice, cool glass of water. I mean, when I'm thirsty, when I'm running around or I'm working hard and it's hot, don't, I don't want Gatorade, I don't want Coca-Cola, I don't want any of that stuff. Give me a nice, cold glass of water. I can taste it now. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you living water. What's living water? What is the living water he's talking about? The Holy Spirit. Now remember our interview with Nicodemus. He said, Nick, you must be born of the Spirit. You must be born of the Spirit. And he's he's in effect saying the same thing to her. I want to give you the Holy Spirit, which will be a source of living water in you that will lead to eternal life. A source of inexhaustible fulfillment and satisfaction in your life now, and confidence that you will have a fullness of life after you die. Eternal life. You know what people's problems is? You know, you know what the human, the greatest human need is? The greatest human need is the need to be fulfilled. The need to be fulfilled. We all look for it, and we look for it through different avenues. We look for it through acceptance. We look for it through being loved. We look for it through our work, through what makes us feel significant and happy and so forth. But bottom line, it's always fulfillment and when we're not being fulfilled we're acutely aware of it that there's unrest in us discomfort frustration you know how you can tell somebody who's not fulfilled you know what you know what's going on you know how you know what's going on in their life they're fearful they're unsettled inside They are empty, insecure, inadequate. All those kinds of things are inside them. And you know how you can tell? Look at their face. How are you? Thankful. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. How are you? I'm fine. Oh, tell your face. You can look at people, don't say what's wrong. They don't know what's wrong. They see that's what we do. We look at someone, we see the downcast look, we don't look too happy, we say, what's wrong? Hey, I don't have a clue what's wrong. All they know is that they're discomforted inside. They're unfulfilled, they're frustrated, they're empty. They're in effect saying, is this all there is? Is this it? See, that ought to be our our, our automatic assumption. And we look at them, we don't say, what's wrong? We look at them and say something to the effect of, you know, I have something you need. Because your automatic assumption is that they have a need. Because the Bible says every man has the same need. Every man, Augustine says, He he, he echoes this prayer to God. He says, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord. The philosopher Pascal said that that our hearts, God has created in us a God-shaped vacuum that only He can fill. Only He can fill it. And we're running around as human beings. And there's a lot of Christians who don't have it. A lot of them. And that's a tragedy because they've not laid hold of the living water that Jesus offers. And so he tells her, I'll give you living water. Now look at her response. The woman said to him, and she knows a good deal when she hears it, she says, Wow, give me some of this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to this well to draw up water. <laughs> Well, she doesn't exactly have it clear yet. But she's beginning to think along the lines that we want her to think. Her understanding of Jesus' offer and her understanding of living water is rather shallow, isn't it? And I suggest to you that sometimes our understanding of what Jesus offers us is rather shallow. How eager we are for the material benefits that we suppose that Jesus will provide for us, and we fairly disregard the spiritual benefits that he chooses to provide, which are far more significant and worthwhile. How do I know that? Well, listen to our prayers. God, bless me. Bless me with holiness. Or God, give me that new house. God, your will be done in my life. Fill me with your joy and your peace. Or God, make sure I get that new car. How do we pray? Now, it's not a crime. Don't get me wrong. It's not bad to to want and desire things. It's just a matter of priority, isn't it? It's just a matter of priority. It, it, It takes a great deal of courage to pray, Lord, your will be done and to mean it. Lord, your will be done. And, and, and sadly, most people today, and especially in Western society, have a rather shallow view of what Jesus offers. They don't really understand the fruit and the benefits and what living water is all about. And much as this woman, her view of living water is kind of shallow. Now, Jesus is going to ask her to step, take a step of faith, and it comes right here in her command. So she's saying, okay, I want this living water that you have to offer. He says, okay, now if you want it, here's what I want you to do. He gives her a command, he says, go, call your husband and come back. Go tell somebody, and for a woman, it would be assumed that she would have a husband, and the first person she should go tell is her husband. So go get your husband and come back here. Now, if she wants badly enough what he has to offer, she's going to have to exert herself to attain it. Isn't that true? I mean, don't we do what we really want to do? Don't we really exert ourselves to get and attain those things we really want to get them? Now, you can say all day long, well, I want to have this and I want to have that. I mean, there's, the whole world is full of people who have the I want us. But there's a lot of people who don't carry through and actually exert themselves to get it. You know why? Because they don't really want it badly enough. There are lots and lots of people who, who reflect on their life and, uh, and the present state of their affairs, and they point to their past, they point to this person, that person, uh, and they make excuses. I spent an hour and a half last night with a couple after the service talking to them, and uh, it was just a litany of, well, she does this, well, he does this, well, she does this, well, he does this. No one was taking responsibility. They were both passing the buck, making excuses. I said, do you want a marriage? Do you want a happy, healthy, functioning marriage that you can pass on to your kids, a heritage that will be a blessing to them rather than propagating another generation of brokenness? I said, yes. Yes, we do. I said, how badly do you want it? Oh, we want it. Then obey Jesus. Because if you really want it, you'll obey Jesus. I said, you won't look to her to see what she is or isn't doing. You won't look to him to see what he, or he is or isn't doing. You'll just be concerned about what your role is and your responsibilities are, and you're going to work hard to be like Jesus to this other person. God. And if you want it badly enough, you'll do it. True? Because we really do only those things we really want to do. And so if she really wants this living water... She has to engage Jesus' command in a positive way. She's got to be willing to exert herself. Now, the command by Jesus, if taken at face value, is going to require for her to walk a mile back to the city in the hot sun, and all she has to go on is the word of a stranger. Would you do it? Now, mind you, Jesus hasn't worked any miracles for her here. She has, all she has is the word, she's had this little 20 minute interview with him. She doesn't have a clue who he is. And he's saying, all right, if you want this living water, then go back, bring your husband. Sure. A mile walk back to the city and then back to the well. Man, that's a big price. You're asking me to do that. Now, it's an appeal to her faith. It's an appeal to faith in her. What's there? Now, as a corollary to this, if, in fact, she obeys his command to go do this, it's going to require, then, that she next reveal her personal life to him, the fact that she doesn't have a husband. But even more than that. And she is not ready to do that. Although she admits that she doesn't have a husband, she doesn't reveal the details of her personal life to him. I mean, would you? I mean, you just met somebody, you've talked to him for 15 minutes, they say, I'll give you... Eternal life, I'll give you living waters. You got to go do this. Are you going to divulge the details of your personal life? Probably not. Most of us are very secretive about those things. And so he's really challenging her. So her response is, I have no husband. So now what do I do? I have no husband. And his response is, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. So what you've said is true. So he commends her on her being truthful, but he also unmasks her and he reveals her deep personal need. What's her deep personal need? To be loved, to be accepted. I mean, she's tried it five times. It's gotten so bad, she's given up on marriage. Now she's just living with somebody. She has no hope. She's absolutely empty. She's a woman who has looked for love in all the wrong places. She's been rejected by five men. Can you imagine how she must feel inside? How worthless? None of the women in the town have anything to do with her. She's an outcast. And Jesus unmasks her. Can you imagine how incredibly embarrassing she must, it must have been at that moment for her to have all this revealed, to have this stranger know these kinds of details about her life. The woman says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Now I want you to notice the rising estimation of Jesus in her mind. First of all, he's just a, a traveler at the well. He's Jewish. Then she's thinking, well, maybe, you know, who do you, are you, are, you, are, you as, are you as good as Jacob? Now he's a prophet, and pretty soon she's going to say, is he the Christ? So he's rising in her estimation. But he's getting a little too close for comfort. And what do we do when someone gets a little too close for comfort in our life? We change the subject. And so to deflect him, she changes the subject... And she uh, points to a a religious controversy that's been going on between the Samaritans and the Jews for centuries about where the right place of worship is up at Mount Gerizim or or Jerusalem. Now, Jesus is going to answer that issue. He's going to direct himself to it, but he's really going to answer her deeper need. And he's going to talk to her about true worship. And again, focus her back in on her need for the Holy Spirit in her life. In effect, he says this. He says, the day is coming when no man will worship up there at Mount Gerizim, no man will worship here in Jerusalem on this mountain. But every true worshiper of God, now get this, every true worshiper of God, does this harken back to Nicodemus's experience? Every true worshiper of God must worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. And in order to commune with him, in order to relate with him, it must happen in the spiritual realm. And you've got to be spiritually equipped to do it. You've got to be born of the spirit. You've got to be made spiritually alive so that you can have a relationship with the God who is spirit. And you must have a hold of the truth. There's a lot of people who are this morning worshiping in some place, some building, some situation, who don't have a clue as to who they're worshiping. They don't have the truth. Now, the Samaritans, this is very interesting. The Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They threw out all the rest of the Old Testament. They threw out the prophets, the Psalms, Proverbs, wisdom literature, everything else. They just had the Pentateuch. And so they had a very limited understanding and knowledge and perspective about who God is, the object of worship, and how to worship him. I mean, the Psalms are full of instructions on how to worship God. Now, the Jews, on the other hand, were different. They had the whole Old Testament, but they were immersed in symbolism and ritualism. And so Jesus, he does away with, he takes aim at the two, mm-hmm. the, the two major aspects of defective worship. Ritualism or symbolism and the lack of truth. And he says, he who worships the true worshiper must worship in spirit and in truth. You've got to have God's word. You've got to have the whole word. You've got to know what the truth is. You've got to know who you're worshiping and how to worship. And you've got to have the spirit of God living in you in order to facilitate that process of worship so that it's effective. And so he tells her that. Now the woman says, after this, she says, I know that Messiah is coming. Now, she knows that the Messiah is coming because the Samaritans are living with the Messianic expectation just as the Jews are down in Judea. He says, when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. She has no concept of who's standing right in front of her. She says, I know the Messiah is coming, and he's going to settle all these religious controversies when he finally comes. And then he picks up on this, and he makes this incredible announcement to her. This is the only place in the Bible where Jesus clearly enunciates to another person that he is the Messiah. And he does it to a woman, a Samaritan woman. Yes. Hallelujah. Jesus has a special place in his heart for women because he knows that Satan has a special hatred for women and from the seed of a woman will come the salvation of the world. And so he has a special place in his heart for women. Isn't that glorious? And so he chooses to reveal himself the most clearly to a woman, an outcast from her own culture and society. Isn't this powerful? And he says to her, I, who speak to you, am he. I am the Messiah. Man, what, sh- what must have happened in her at that moment? And the language he uses is very specific, by the way. He uses a term in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Do you remember when, when, when God came to Moses and he said to Moses out there in the wilderness in the burning bush, he, said, he spoke to me. he says, go tell Pharaoh to set my people free. And Moses quivered back and forth and he says, well, who should I say sent me? And God said, tell him I am sent you. I am. I mean, that's the definitive word. The buck stops there. I am, sent you. Well, the Greek word for I am is ego emi. It's, it's the emphatic form. Jesus uses it several times. John records in his gospel, and he's the only one that does it, records several times Jesus uses that term, ego emi. And every time he uses it, it just inflames the Jews because they know that that's a reference, a direct reference to God's name, I am. And so here, the Samaritan woman knows that term. And so he uses that very same term. He says, ego emi. I am. I am he. The one who's sitting here talking to you. I am the Messiah. Man, oh man. And just then, he's made this announcement, just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Now, they don't say anything. They're very wise. They keep their mouth shut. They don't say anything to her. What do you want? Nor did they say anything to him. Uh, why are you talking with this woman? They just, whoa, something's going on here. Now they knew Jesus well enough to know that he didn't do things according to the norm. I mean, they're picking up on that much already. They've been with him a year now. But look at her response. Verse 28. Then leaving her water jar... I mean, she's obviously convinced of something. She's leaving her water jar. She goes back to the town and says to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Now, I think she's convinced. But remember, she's a social outcast. Who's going to believe her if she comes and makes a profound proclamation? Rather, she's going to go and say, come and see this guy. Maybe he's the Messiah. I think he is, but you guys come and see. (laughs) now let's see what happens they say ah no way no verse 30 they came out of the town and made their way towards him now i want you to notice something here the disciples who've been with jesus about a year now the disciples go into town what did they bring back from town food Food. (laughs) she's been with him 20 minutes she goes into town what does she bring back people which do you prefer Jesus which which you think Jesus would prefer that we bring to him people what's the priority of our lives our own comfort satiating our own needs necessarily Now again there's nothing wrong with that we need to have those needs met but what's the priority when you and I go into town What's the priority? When you and I go out and meet people, what's paramount in our thinking? Do we share our testimony as she does? Do we tell people, come and see? Or do we go and just do our business and forget and are oblivious to all those people out there who are perishing, who have desperate needs? Meanwhile, his disciples urge him, Rabbi, eat something. I mean, these guys are oblivious to this whole scene. They don't have a clue of what's going on. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Their response, of course, is could someone have brought him some food? <laughs> I mean, these guys are out in la la land. <laughs> And Jesus responds, and he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. It's more important for me. The thing that is paramount in my life is not to eat right now, but to do the will of him who sent me and to bring that work to completion, not just to start it and leave it dangling out here. Most of us start it and leave it dangling, if we even start it. He says, do you not say, now he quotes a a saying from the day, do you not say four months more and then the harvest? See, the the planting season was late in December. The harvesting season was early in May. The intervening period was roughly four months. And so people would do all their planting. Then they'd sit around and they'd say, four more months to harvest. (laughs) So he picks up on that saying, which they were all very familiar with. And he says, I tell you, I mean, you have this saying, but I tell you, look, look. Open your eyes and see the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Now, we don't have an indication. John doesn't say anything, but possibly Jesus could see the guys coming back from town, walking down the road, coming to meet him and coming to interview him. And he's saying to his disciples, Look at it. There's the harvest. Open your eyes. The field is ripe. Don't wait. There are people coming ripe every single hour of every single day. Don't wait. Go out into the harvest. It's plentiful. It's ready and it's ripe now, Jesus is saying to us. And then he dropped down to verse 39. He says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. How do people come to Christ? Do you know how people come to Christ? They come to Christ first and more significantly than any other avenue because of your testimony and my testimony. Because we've gone to them and we've said, you know, I don't know if you know Jesus Christ, but I want to tell you about him. He's changed my life, John. He's changed my life. And I just want to tell you what, what's going on in my life and you begin to share your testimony about how God has changed your life, how Christ has ministered to you, this guy's got to deal with it. Especially if he's had visibility of your life before he became a Christian and now, and he sees the change, and he's willing to affirm it, and he'll tell you privately, he'll never tell you this in public, but he'll tell you privately, he says, you know, you are different. And you know something more? I like you better now. Something is different about you, you're right. Your testimony is going to speak to that person. And then you say, now just don't take my word for it. Come in here. Come. Just come and listen. That's what friend day is all about, isn't it? We're sharing with people. They have visibility of our lives. We're telling them how we're changed, how God's meeting our needs. He's providing for us. He's filling us up. We have a new joy, a new hope, new satisfaction. And we know this person doesn't. We say you can have the same thing. Come and see. Come and see. And so we invite people to come and see Jesus, just like the woman did. And people will come. If you invite them, they'll come. And so, verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Can you imagine what Jesus must have told them within that two days? Whoa. He stayed two days. Now look at verse 41. And because of his miracles and wondrous signs, many more became believers. No? What is it? Because of his words. He had words of life. He had words of life. He knew exactly what their needs were, and he spoke down to the deepest need, and they responded, they knew, they said, yes, yes, This is what I need. Give me living water. How many people have we heard about and read about in the newspapers and stories had all the money in the world and they're jumping out of windows, killing themselves. They got all the money could possess. Power, position, prestige. And yet they're terribly, terribly unfulfilled and lost. No, they believed because of what he told them. His words were powerful. In chapter 6, after Jesus confronts all those who are following him, he separates the sheep from the goats, and and John writes that, that, that many of the disciples left him. He turns to Peter and to the others, and he says, Will you leave me too? And they look, and they say, Where will we go? You have words of life. You have words of life. His words, they're life. In the last paragraph, verse 42, he says, And they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Hallelujah! Here is this woman who wakes up one morning to face the same dreary, frustrating day She meets Jesus and he changes her life. But not only does he change her life, he uses her as the impetus to to change the life of the people in that town and indeed in that district of Samaria. Powerful. You don't know how God is going to use you. And you never know when he's there and he wants to speak through your life. Be faithful that he could use you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word once again. Lord, even as I read this account and have studied it, you caused me to remember the day I met you. Father, I remember back in that day, just back in 1977. Lord, when I was alone and afraid, feeling hopeless, greatly discouraged and in the midst of my despair you sent two people to come and talk to me and they didn't tell me all the theology I didn't have a clue what was going on but they brought me good news and good news of hope and they told me their testimony of how how you had changed their lives how you'd come into a lives that are full of grief and despair and change them and bless them because they put their trust in you. And I knew right then and there that I, I needed you. I'd never made a decision, never made a commitment. I was always afraid to. Always thought I could handle things on my own, but you brought me to a place where I saw that I couldn't. And that night I made a decision. I didn't have it all together, Lord, but you still honored that decision. And I gave my life to you. And my life has changed ever since. And I give you thanks. And Lord, you've accorded me the pleasure. Father, I I confess that if somebody, a day before that event, the day of that event, would have told me that I'd be a pastor standing before this great congregation, there's no way that I would have agreed. But Lord, you've have, you have allowed me the privilege of shepherding this great congregation. Lord, just as you use the Samaritan woman to bring many people to you. I thank you, Father. I'm humbled by your grace. I'm humbled by your transforming power. I'm humbled by how you continue to work in my life. You continue to transform me. And in my life, more and more and more, the things of this world are growing dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. Oh, yeah. And more and more and more, your kingdom is becoming clearer and clearer and clearer. Father, I pray for the congregation this morning. I pray, Lord, that as we think about this episode, as we meditate on our own experience, God, that you would stir our hearts to be like this Samaritan woman who would receive living water and go excitedly tell others Lord, enable us, I pray, strengthen us, that we be faithful stewards over all that you've entrusted into our hands. Most of all, the great spiritual heritage that you've given us. We give you thanks, Father. We love you this morning. I want you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed.